Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Bible Quest. It's good to have everyone on today. If you're joining us, you can get a Bible out and turn it over to Matthew chapter 7. And uh, we're certainly glad to have you listening and joining us. Uh, today on the webcast, as usual, we have Jeff Smelser joining us from Exton, Pennsylvania. How are you today, Jeff? Uh, Jeff, I, I can't hear anything you're saying. Sorry, I'm doing very well. It's springtime. I love springtime, and today's a beautiful day. That adds up with what your lips were, what I was reading, so that makes sense. <laughs> and of course, in uh, Elmira, New York, where I was just a couple days ago, we've got Joe Works with us. How are you doing today, Joe? I am very blessed. Chase, thanks for asking. Yeah, good deal. And uh, of course, in the background, we got Drew DeGrotto working the tech side of things. We appreciate him doing that. Guys, uh, we're going to be looking at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 in just a second. And I just wanted from the get-go, because I realized we're kind of jumping into a really great sermon, it, for just a couple of minutes, could each of you share with me just some really, uh, some things from the sermon in chapters 5, 6, and 7, some things that really stand out to you all, and maybe some things that are just really challenging to hear if you were somebody coming to Jesus for the first time? Well, what always jumps out at me about the kingdom of the, the Sermon on the Mount is it is a sermon about how to live in Christ's kingdom. He is the Messiah coming into the world. Uh, you start out, the kingdom is at hand, and you'll notice the number of times he refers to the kingdom, the righteousness of the kingdom, and in terms of what's challenging, there's a lot that's challenging, but something's that we run into today, there are people in this world today who have lived in a worldly way and they're, they've divorced their spouses and now they're living in fornication. And Jesus had the same situation in the first century. And it's right there, part of the kingdom living sermon. But there's a lot else. There's, there's just about attitudes, about forgiveness, about forgiving one another, about avoiding conflict. Um, we're going to have conflicts with evil and conflicts with the world, but we don't have to have conflicts with one another that are rooted in our kind of our egos. And you see that kind of thing taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, very good. Joe, what, what stands out to you? Well, um, just so much of the sermon involves Old Testament teaching, but Jesus explains the, the heart behind those uh, things that they had misapplied or ignored or, you know, talked away or whatever, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And, you know, in their day, they probably would have thought, who's more righteous than those guys? Uh, and yet they were anything but righteous. And so um, Jesus teaching that, that religion and service to God transcends just the action that comes to the heart. Yeah, that's a helpful way to put that. I think one of the things that stands out to me in this sermon um, is, is one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. You know, I think for the longest time, a, a lot of people had it in their head, and maybe a lot of people still do that, you know, my, my religious relationship or my religious life, it's really just between me and God, right? Um, it doesn't really matter how I treat other people. It doesn't matter about any of that. As long as I just kind of have this loose thing with God, that's good enough. And that is far from what Jesus teaches on, on the Sermon on the Mount, that, that life in the kingdom, being pure in heart, it will take over every facet of your life, whether it be your relationship with God or your relationship with other people. 
one of the greatest examples of this is when Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's like, it's not just the problem that you're, you're looking, it's the, or that you're not actually going out and cheating, but the problem is you're looking with that intent in your mind. And so the Sermon on the Mount is filled with, with all kinds of things like that, that really make us slow down and think about our actions and thinks of, think about how we treat other people. Um, it's in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus will say, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, that's just unheard of in that day and age and even now. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is teaching. He'll call out hypocrisy when people are doing religious things in chapter six, but only to be seen by men. Jesus will tell them uh, some, some good corrections they can make to that. And guys, the reason why I wanted to do this exercise is just to emphasize how challenging a lot of what Jesus said is in the sermon. And because when you get to the end of the sermon, Jesus doesn't get to the end of it and say, well, you know, just for the most part, follow what I said. And if it sounds good to you, that's great. If not, no worries, not a big deal. There wasn't a wishy-washy conclusion to the way he wraps up. The way Jesus wraps up is, okay, you have two choices. You can either follow what I said, or you can go against it and continue to live the way that you're living. And that, I think, flies in, in the face of our culture today. This is something Jeff and I were talking about and Drew before the podcast um, was just that our culture is a very wishy-washy, maybe fickle society that cannot stand on anything. Um, there is no definite truth for them. And so this idea of having either one choice or the other is really lost. So I, I want to open that up. What do you guys think about that? Is that fair for me to say, or do you think I'm off on that? <laughs> uh, I, think, I think that's very much the case. Uh, uh, about the only thing that you can take a stand for as absolute today would be against authority or against holding people accountable for what they want to do but ought not. Yeah. I'm sorry to laugh, Chase, but I'm, I was working on a couple of things at once and my mind had missed part of what you'd said there. And then you threw it to us what we think about it. And there was dead silence. <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, it makes it makes it sound like we don't think that was a good comment. <laughs> but I just missed it. No worries. So I was just asking, what do you all think about our, our society and culture? Do, do you think that they struggle with this idea of there just being two ways of life? Yeah. Or yeah, just elaborate on maybe some maybe some of the things you'd mentioned before the website yeah, just, started. Just just I think a lot of people resist the idea of having to choose between two things. Um, that that imposes a responsibility. I think a lot of people like it when uh, there's a lot of gray area, when the choice is difficult to define, when there's a lot of well, it could be this or it could be that or it could be the other. It depends on the situation because then you don't have to come up with a right or wrong. But when you say it's this or that, one's right, one's wrong, that, that imposes a responsibility. We love the idea of saying there's no right or wrong. Yeah, because then, yeah, as you said, there's no personal accountability there. If there's no right or wrong, anything I do goes. And, and in time, and there's certainly times when there are situations where there's no right or wrong. There certainly are. But, but I think in our culture, we would like for everything to be 
no right or wrong answer. Okay. Yeah, that's a helpful way to put that. Well, let's look at the, the first of four ways that Jesus is going to say this, the two choices that we have. Um, guys, will one of you want to read Matthew 7, 13, and 14? Sure. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Okay, so... This is, I think, one of the more familiar ones that a lot of people have um, with what Jesus said about following him. And I love the imagery. It's just kind of two paths, right? There, there's two roads that you're going down. And uh, there's one that, that's described as a narrow gate. Um, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are a lot of people who enter through it. So it's wide. It, it might look good but it leads down a path that will ultimately destroy you. Um, and I don't know about you all. Have you ever been driving down the road and uh, maybe you're not pressed for time and you're, you're wanting to maybe take an alternate route. And so you get on your GPS and you're looking at all the different ways and you say, Oh, this one looks fun through some back roads. And you get out there and before you realize it, it's on these small gravel roads that aren't paved really well, or, you know, you just get into the scenario where it looked good. It looked fun, but before you know it, it's destruction. It's scary. And, and, and that's where you are. I, I absolutely have done that. I absolutely. I was coming back from Bowling Green, Kentucky. It was it last month. And I was trying to take a shortcut back in the hills of Kentucky, um, north of Bowling Green, west of, of uh, Elizabethtown. And, and uh, I did exactly that. I thought, it looks like this road here. I'll cut over to that highway. It went down this road. Oh, now I got to turn off onto this road. Because this, the other roads that I did, it got smaller, it got smaller. I kept following the way I had to go. It kept getting smaller and smaller. And before you knew it, I was out in the, really out in the boondocks at a dead end in front of a house that I didn't want to be in front of. <laughs> and, and let me guess, you had to turn all the way yeah. back around and yeah, go all the way yeah, back. Yeah. And that's the, that's the truth of the matter. The, the farther you get down that road, the longer way it takes to get back sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And that, that is certainly true spiritually. And that's Jesus's point here is that there's going to be a lot of people that go this direction. And let's just make it clear in this context, he's talking about religious people. I mean, he's talking about people who, who claim to know it, people who think that they have it, but really they're going down a path of destruction. What do you guys, uh, what do you guys think about that? Anything else? Well, I think one of the, one of the dangers is that's where most people are headed, you know, in that, in those two verses, um, it's not just the danger of going that way, but going with the flow. Um, you know, there are many who are going that way. If uh, sometimes if we are maybe lost driving or whatever, we might see a bunch of cars heading a certain way and think, well, that must be the way to the interstate or that must be the way to, to go. Everybody else said that way. And that's just a dangerous way to, to drive. You don't know where everybody else is going. Um, uh, and so we ought, we need to make sure that we're not following the crowd. Um, I don't know that there's a particular percentage labeled here. There's not, but, uh, he certainly lets us know that if we're following the majority, that's, that puts us in danger. Yeah, that's right. And so the, the contrast, of course, in verse 14 is that there's a small gate, narrow gate, whatever you want to call it, that leads to life. And there are a few who find it. I found it interesting because normally what is life contrasted with? 
death, but here it's contrasted with destruction. Um, I think that's kind of interesting. But if you want life, and I think the idea is eternal life, you're going to go through this narrow gate. And look, that way is also, in a lot of ways, going to be difficult. It's harder to navigate through there, but the end result is so far better than what the other way had to offer. And so those are your two choices. And, and really, if we wanted to boil it down, guys, what we're talking about is choosing a life here with a lot of difficulty and a lot of sorrow, a lot of, a lot of resisting, a lot of self-control for an eternity of something great. Or we can choose to go down this path where we just live it up and we, we indulge in all these desires of the flesh. But the end of that, of course, is eternal destruction. Do you want a little bit of, or a, a little bit of work now for an eternal rest? Or do you want a little bit of rest now for a lifetime of just horribleness, you know, is the, the two boats we're talking about here. And Jesus' point is a lot of people are actually just going to choose this short-sighted pleasure here and not go for, you know, the temporary uncomfortableness that this world is. Mm -hmm. So um, we can move on to the next one. Uh, there's kind of two other choices or two other things Jesus will warn against. Um, Jeff, do you mind to read 15 through 20? So Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. By their fruits you shall know them. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but the corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. All right. So uh, you've got the wide gate and the narrow gate. Now you've got false prophets and really uh, true prophets that are from God here. And we get to make our decision. Wh which, which prophet are we going to follow? Who, who are we going to be aligned with um, in this world? But Jesus tells us that if you want to identify a false prophet, here are some ways to do it. And I find it really interesting. How, does the, how do they describe the false prophets in verse 15? Well, uh, they come in sheep's clothing, so they, they look they look good. Yeah, which it looks is like kind of scary. Yeah. Um, I think we would all love the idea that, oh, that's a wolf, so I need to stay away from it. But Jesus is saying, no, actually, these wolves are going to look like sheep. It's, you're going to have to really look to try and figure out, are they sincere? You know, whatever have you. And he uses this analogy of knowing them by their fruits. And so let me just ask this, guys. What would be some bad fruit of a false prophet? What would be some things you could look at and, and be able to tell that this guy might be off or, or woman? Well, the works of the flesh. You have the two okay. choices between the fruit of the spirit and the works of the flesh in Galatians oh. 5. And, and you see the works of the flesh is the result uh, of the life of the false prophet. You know, we have these televangelists who get on TV and all of a sudden you find out about their life and it's pretty corrupt. I mean, I'm not saying everybody on TV is corrupt, but... We, we have plenty of cases that can come to mind. Yeah, that's exactly right. Somebody who is, um, is a, being a hypocrite, they're not following, they're not practicing what they're preaching. I know for me, in my experience, um, back when I was in Kentucky, there was a false teacher in one of the congregations I was with. And um, one of his patterns was lying. Uh, he, he, would, he would tell the elders or the overseers of that group that he was teaching this thing over at this person's house 
when really that wasn't true. He was actually teaching this false doctrine. And there were a few other things that he would get caught in lies in. And after the lies started piling up, that was some bad fruit that gave us an indication. Maybe this guy, he's hiding something. Maybe he's doing something in his life that he shouldn't be. And sure enough, that was the case. So any of the works of the flesh really um, would be would be what we're looking for here. Let, let me, can I throw out an idea here? You guys may disagree with this, but you, that's all right. You did disagree with me. That's all right. But tell me what you think. You know, when Jesus said this, uh, he's on the earth. He's going to be uh, leaving the earth. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to be raised from the dead. He's going to ascend to the father. And then there are going to be a lot of prophets out there. And some of them would be true prophets and some of them would be false prophets. And so this teaching, of course, is going to be very relevant. It's still relevant to us today, but we really don't have true prophets today. Um, you know, prophets, somebody who speaks by revelation, who speaks directly from God. So what we're left with is the word. Uh, there's truth and there's error. I uh, was talking with, uh, I had a Bible study last night with some ladies, and we were talking about baptism and that baptism is the point at which we are joined with Christ. We are baptized into the body of Christ. We're baptized for remission of sins. We're baptized into Christ. Saul had believed and repented and was praying, but his sins weren't washed away until he was baptized. And so they're getting it, but at the same time, they're just having a hard time with the notion that there are all these churches and all the teachings in all these churches where they don't teach that, where they teach that baptism is a good thing to do, but you're saved before you're baptized. You just need to accept Jesus as a personal savior. And, and the thing that I was hearing them say was something along the lines, this is so sad and how can this be? And, and I think the connection I wanna to make to what you're talking about here is, sometimes today it's not a matter of figuring out who is the true prophet and who is the false prophet as much as it is just looking at the fact there's gonna be error and there's gonna be truth. And uh, what you, you have to go with the truth and let the chips fall where they may. Yes. So here's that's the other aspect of the bad fruit. Bad fruit doesn't only have to be a false prophet that is walking by the flesh. Are there good men and women out there who are teaching false doctrine, but are living perhaps a righteous life in terms of, of staying away from the things the scriptures say? Well, sure. But one of the bad fruits of a false prophet would be, false teaching. It would be the, the um, opposite of what God's will is. And so to your friends, Jeff, that you're studying with, and I've had similar conversations with people who say, well, I, I just can't see that good brother so-and-so, even though he, he's, he's so nice and so, you know, such a good person, I can't see him to be wrong. You know what Jesus would say to you in that moment? Make your decision. Mm -hmm. He would say, make your choice. If you've, right. if you've just out, if you've just identified that he's a false teacher, a false prophet, whatever you want to call him, that doesn't change what you need to do. That doesn't change what your response is. Your response still needs to be make your decision and walk away from that person. They might be a good person. You might be right. But if you've identified that they're a false prophet, you're, you have to make your choice, yeah. either stick with them or not. And Jesus makes it very clear what happens to false teachers or false prophets in verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Um, there, there is a, that's the option for them. That's their choice. Yeah. And, and think and about that, the passage over in John 15 uh, with 
Jesus uh, being the vine and uh, his disciples being uh, the, the branches. Uh, I think a similar lesson can be seen there. Uh, we need to abide in Jesus. So somebody who is teaching something that isn't true, somebody might respond, but they're such a good pe person or whatever the case. Basically, you're making a, uh, a decision not to follow Jesus by following that other person. You know, I think when we put it into to that, uh, again, following this theme of you have two choices, um, either, either that person is telling the truth or Jesus is telling the truth. And from that vantage point, which one is going to be the better person to follow? Yes. Amen. That's a, that's a good way to put that. It's a redirecting people to, when we're talking about a false prophet, we're talking about someone who's contradicting Jesus. Which one are you going to follow? Who's your choice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's a good way to put that, Joe. I like that. Well, guys, anything else through uh, verse 20? All right. Uh, well, I'll read the next one. Let's read 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not uh, prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Okay, so here in this section, we have you're either going to be a true disciple or you're going to be a false disciple. There's going to be a lot of people in this day of judgment that are going to be saying, Lord, Lord. You know, they're, they're calling out to Jesus as the Lord. But he says, not everyone who does that will enter into the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And guys, how do we know someone's will? Well, <laughs> with god it's it's easy you listen to him let him tell you yeah that's Sometimes right with people that's not the way it is yes but <laughs> let's let's talk about a scenario i don't know if either of you two have a written will i don't know if either of you have done that yeah, yet I do. Yeah. yeah um i don't i should probably do that at some point but we're, we're old enough that we recognize the need for it Chase. i wasn't going to say anything and in fact if you if you if you two had said no we were going to have a conversation later where i was going to have to encourage you all to think about that um but anyways uh but whenever when someone dies and they leave a will behind you read it you listen to it you follow that will of theirs for for whatever and I realize it's not the perfect comparison, but that's really the same concept that we're talking about with the Lord, that in order to know his will, we have to listen to him. We, we have to read and understand what he wants from us. And Jesus is saying that is going to be who enters the kingdom. And then so interesting to me in verse 22, there seems to be this argument that, that takes place apparently uh, on that day, because what are these people who are claiming to follow Jesus going to say to Jesus in verse 22? I'm sorry, where are you? Uh, and, and Matthew 7. Oh, yeah. Many, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy by your name and by your name cast out demons and by your name do many mighty works? They're going to be they're going to be caught by surprise. Yeah. Apparently, these people are going to argue with Jesus and say, no, 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 no. Remember, I was the one that was doing all this stuff. Yeah. And apparently Jesus is still going to look at them and say, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice all this. Now, is this just Jesus being heartless or is there a reason why he's saying he doesn't know them? Well, I, I think the comparison goes back to verse 21 is that yeah. they weren't doing the will of the father. Right. They, they might have been outwardly doing all these good things that are religious and 
I don't know about you guys. Do you, I, I personally believe Jesus is saying that there are some people who are going to prophesy and cast out demons and even do some of these miracles, but still so, not so be this, following God. Yeah, so go ahead. In Acts 19, we've got the sons of Sceva who said, you know, they tried to cast out demons uh, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They were not following the teaching of Paul. They were not following Jesus, but they're going to throw out those names. Um, so it didn't work out very well for them. And so you can see somebody like that. Hey, I, I used your name. I threw your name out. Well, when people start talking about salvation and they just say, well, uh, accept Jesus as your personal Savior. And so they say, Lord Jesus, I accept you as my personal Savior. You've said something that sounds good, but that's not his will. I mean, to accept him truly would be his will, but that's not just saying, I accept you as my personal Savior. Jesus has told us what we have to do to be saved by him. And if I'm going to do his will, I have to do what he said, not just say something with his name in it. Let's follow that thread some more. And for those who are listening, I realize we, I haven't engaged the audience as much today. Um, think of some Bible illustrations or Bible examples of people who were outwardly doing something for God or in the name of God, but they still weren't doing the will of God. Um, I've got a couple that are coming to my mind. The first one is Saul, not, uh, not Saul of Tarsus, but Saul in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. You guys remember whenever Samuel came to him and told him to go up against the Amalekites and uh, what was Saul told to do in, in 1 Samuel um, Destroy all of the Amalekites. Yeah, that's right. Destroy all of them. Kill the king. Yeah. Agag, kill, kill all of them. And Saul doesn't do that. He leaves a little bit behind. He spares the king. He keeps all of these animals and all this stuff he was supposed to utterly slaughter. And when Samuel comes back to him, he's like, what are you doing? You know, this was not what you were supposed to do. And Saul says, well, we kept all these animals so that we could sacrifice them to God. Yeah. And Samuel has that famous line that says, is it really, is this really what you're going to do? It is better to obey than to sacrifice. You know, that doesn't make any sense. So, my point is Saul was doing something outwardly. His intention was to, to keep all this to sacrifice to God. But at the end of the day, guess what? He still did not do God's will. Mm -hmm. And so he was condemned. And it was at that point, of course, uh, the kingdom is taken away from Saul and it's going to be given to David and, and on and from there. Mm -hmm. So I wonder in this text in verse 22, um, you know, a lot of times we'll find a list of things, whether it's spoken by the Lord or Paul or Peter in the writings, and the list is not intended to be all-inclusive. You know, um, uh, the, the the things that uh, will cause a person not to inherit the kingdom of God in, in 1 Corinthians 6, for example. You know, there, there's other things that, that, that aren't included in that list. I'm wondering, it, would that be the case here in verse 22? Is this everything that, 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 that would... Uh, that the Lord is going to respond to, I never knew you, or the three things that he lists, prophesying, casting out demons, and doing many wonders, it seems almost like the kind of text in 1 Corinthians 13, the extreme situation. You know, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, uh, you know, even these tremendously great things, which then I think brings us to a very personal challenge. So, I may be thinking, man, I, I really preached a good sermon last Sunday. 
I don't think that very often, but uh, you know, maybe maybe I really think that I did that, or I really helped that that person out. Maybe I really helped out ten people. You know, uh, what deeds am I maybe counting on that God is going to grant me fellowship? Uh, it almost seems like He's dealing here with sort of an extreme situation, is to say, even if you did these things, if you aren't doing my will. It's for nothing. Yes, that's a, I've not thought about it that way before, Joe. And I think that that's, that's right. Um, and kind of going along with that, I think he's trying to straighten out this mentality of as long as, I, as long as all the good things I do outweigh the bad things that I've done, then, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I've done what I can. I've called him Lord, Lord. I've done all these good things. And that's not the case at all. Just because you do all these good things, it doesn't erase the bad that is there. You can't just bank on, um, you know, all the good things that you did. You've got to bank on the Lord. You've got to put your trust in him and in essence do, you know, his will. You froze there for a little bit, Joe. So I thought I, I thought I puzzled you for a second, but um, your screen was just frozen. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh oh. I think don't 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 make a conclusion either way. There, so Jesus uses the same statement: "The will of my Father." Uh, I think that that's helpful, maybe to think about. I guess even somewhat regularly in the, the the Gospel of Matthew, as well as the other Gospel accounts, Jesus emphasizes "my Father," but then in Matthew twelve, he makes that distinction then you can be my brothers and sisters and mother, whoever does the will of my father, Matthew 12, 50, I think it is. Um, uh, so really we ought to think about it is God's only begotten son that is laying forth this uh, condition, as you stated, these two options. It's God's son. But who would know the will of the father? The person who can say, my father. Mm -hmm. The one the will went to. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put that. Um, I, another example I was thinking about with, with this idea of, of outwardly doing the right thing, but not really doing the will of God was Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. People who were doing this outwardly good thing by giving a portion of what they earned to the Lord or to the apostles to be distributed. But they'd actually lied about it. They were trying to make it look like they had given more um, than they actually had. And so uh, they're ultimately struck dead for that. And I think this is the type of discipleship that Jesus is warning against. And we'll bring it full circle. Make your choice. Are you going to be a true disciple? Are you going to be someone who's in the will of God and is striving to follow that as best as you can? Or are you going to be wishy-washy? Um, are you going to be someone who's just outwardly putting on this facade and not truly converted to the Lord? Mm -hmm. What else do you guys think about this passage? Um, you know, early on in this section, he talked about your righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees. And uh, let's see where he's at back in chapter five and verse uh, 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. You've already made the point, but just I think reiterated here. You had people in that society who were viewed as very religious and, and kind of were the standards of orthodoxy and that kind of thing. And yet um, their righteousness was not 
going to do it. It was not going to cut it because they weren't doing the will of the Father. <clears throat> That's exactly we, right. We got that today. Yeah. Well, let's let's take so, a look so at what this. What does it mean to you guys oh, that verse twenty three? I, I never knew you. I'm sorry. I'm just, what I, I I don't think we talked much about this idea of I never knew you. Uh, what what's the the power of that? Do you think? That's a good question. Is it is it that these people who are are claiming to have known Jesus? He never came to them because they never did the will of the Father. And although they might be claiming him, he's really saying, I never knew you because you never did the will of my father. I, I realize I'm just restating the passage, but that's kind of where I was going. I was going to go, well, I, th I think it kind of means he never knew them. Yeah. <laughs> what, what you got, Joe? Tell us what we're missing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking about they're saying, Lord, Lord, they're, they're appealing to his name. You know, it, they're, they're really strongly implying we have a relationship. We know you. And he's like, no, I, I, I don't know you. Um, uh, I guess I, I'm thinking about passages like Galatians 4 and uh, verse 9, uh, beginning verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you serve those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? I think it's really significant to, to weigh out I may know God, but does God know me? You know, uh, I, I, I know some, some famous people in the world. If you came up to them and said, hey, what do you think about Joe Works? They would immediately say, who? <laughs> you know, they don't know me. They, they wouldn't remember me. Uh, but I crossed paths with them one time or another. You know, that was my five seconds of, of fame or whatever. But, but they don't know me. And so to think about the saying, Lord, Lord, as if I know him, what's really important is whether he knows me and the way that he makes that decision is whether I'm doing what he says, doing his will. Yeah. And that is, it's a, it's a chilling thing to think about that the, the Lord coming on that day and saying, who are you? Um, you know, and just having that moment of, of trying to explain it. Um, yeah. Um, would one of you want to look at Pat's comment there and elaborate on that? I got it. So Pat says, perhaps in Matthew chapter 5, 20, Jesus was not talking about the hypocritical Pharisees, but the Pharisees like Saul, who were doing God's will according to the Old Testament. I mean, what kind of challenge is verse 20? If all Jesus is saying is you must be more righteous than Adolf Hitler, duh. <laughs> okay, so that, that maybe I can restate his point this way. We have sometimes when we've studied our Bibles and we, we're familiar with, I think it's Luke 16, about verse 15, where uh, Luke tells us that the Pharisees were lovers of money uh, or Matthew 23, where Jesus says, you to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, repeatedly, we kind of have a, a reputation or we kind of have a thought about Pharisees and it's negative. And so when, when Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees, it's 
kind of like, well, duh, they were lovers of money and, and they were hypocrites and so on. But I think what Pat is highlighting is, is the fact that in that culture, uh, they would not necessarily have been viewed as the, the way we view them from the light of the New Testament. Um, and that there were those among them, such as Saul of Tarsus and Nicodemus, uh, who were very devout people and uh, thought they were doing the right thing. Saul thought he was doing the right thing. He said he'd lived in all good conscience and, and done what he thought he ought to do contrary to the name of Jesus. He didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't believe Jesus was the Christ. And so, um, so, so I think it's a helpful point to, to make that when he says your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees, we ought not just think, okay, our righteousness has to be better than the worst people we can think of. He's really saying your righteousness has to be better than the people who the world thinks of as the best people. And the problem is we can't make ourselves righteous. To be righteous, we're going to have to have the blood of Christ take away our unrighteousness. But then the Sermon on the Mount calls upon us to live righteously according to the principles of his kingdom. Yeah, very good. So Pat may be correct in this. I guess I'm thinking about within the book of Matthew, scribes and Pharisees, you know, later on, they're going to come up in Matthew 23, pretty prominently. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. That, that seems to me the, the, to be the group that he'd talk, be talking about. Maybe as opposed to if we're going to make a modern day connection, I wouldn't think of this being compared to Adolf Hitler any more than Pat would, uh, but I might make a comparison and say something like, and again, I'm just going to give some illustrations, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of Billy Graham, Pat Robertson, and Joel Olstein, uh, then you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And that would probably, well, I shouldn't say probably, that would be an absolute shock to many religious people. Yeah. say your righteousness needs to be greater than that of Billy Graham or yeah. your righteousness needs to be greater than that of Joel Olstein. Yeah. Now, I, I, I would not disagree with Pat's uh, conclusion that he's also including uh, Paul, uh, Saul Paul, um, uh, and, and other Pharisees as well. But I'm thinking of making the connection with Matthew thir uh, 23. And, and maybe that's a connection that doesn't have to be made. Well, it is a connection that doesn't. So have I guess to be the made. question is, is he talking about uh, the Pat Robertsons of the world or the Joel Osteen, I mean, or the Jimmy Swaggerts of the world. Um, you know, we've, we've had a number of prominent religious men, leaders, who, lo and behold, their lives were exposed and they were flagrantly um, living lives of uh, sexual immorality and carnality and materialism. Uh, Jim, ba Jim Backer, or Baker, however you said his name, was another Jim and Tammy Backer, Baker? Baker. Baker. But it's spelled with two Ks, wasn't it? But anyway. Uh, I don't think so. But okay. Yeah. But anyway, so, so I guess that's the kind of question. Are we talking about people like that, or are we talking about people who may be decent moral people, but they're just teaching a, a, an error? Well, Joe, it's a bad time for you to freeze. There you are. I was just doing a quick Google search on yeah. Jimmy Swagger. Yeah, uh, maybe think about... Yeah, I, I knew that all of these were going to... Uh, that uh, Chase was going to have to look these individuals up. <laughs> uh, what's the fellow... I, I never can pronounce his name. 
is it Ravi or Rafi? What was it? Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias. Yeah, you know that that might be somebody that I mean, man, his YouTube hits just tremendous. A lot of people really respected him, but he would certainly fit into that category of uh, of, of like a Matthew twenty three, whose, whose righteousness was not God's righteousness. Yeah. Um, but 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 to Pat's point. Um, certainly even somebody like Paul who thought at the time that he was serving God with a clean conscience, but was actually fighting against the Lord. Uh, that's certainly worth thinking through for this text as well. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go ahead and, uh, let's finish up reading. Um, let's read 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell, and great was its fall. Y'all, this, uh, this analogy is pretty personal to me. Um, for one of my first jobs from the time I was 16, 17, and even uh, into college, I poured basement foundations and footers. Uh, did that with my uncles. And uh, man, if you had to pick two things, which one would just be on the surface easier? Of course, it would be just pull up on the job site, throw your bottom plates down and just start putting your walls up. You know, that would be way easier than getting the forms off the truck and digging a hole and then setting the forms up and getting the concrete tr tr uh, truck to come, pouring the concrete in, manning the concrete, putting the rebar in, you know, all the work that goes into pouring a foundation. It's a lot of work. It'd be way easier to just throw some studs up and, you know, put a house up. So Chase, if it's so much easier, why do you go to all that trouble to do all that other stuff? Because the payout is worth it. Because here's why. Whether you built a foundation or not, one thing is guaranteed in this passage. The storm is coming. The storm is going to come. And it's the same exact storm to the guy who built his house on the sand and the guy who built his house on a rock, on a firm foundation. But of course, the results were two completely different results. Um, and if we will listen and act on the words of Jesus, what's he, what he's promising is is that house won't go anywhere, uh, that, that he is that rock that is going to keep us firm when the storms of life come. But we have to listen and do and apply the words of Jesus. And those are the two choices, folks. That, that's what we're talking about. You can either be impressed by the words of Jesus and just leave it at that, or be impressed to the point that you change your life and follow the words of Jesus. Um, so anyways, uh, th that's where Jesus is concluding this, this great sermon is, what's your decision going to be? And I think we're in a culture now, and always have been, that, that really needs to hear that, that there is a better way to live. There is a good option out there if you will just listen and obey what the, what the Father says. Okay. Very good. Well, uh, guys, I think that's our time today. Do you all have any other last comments or anything else you all want to say? Two choices. We need to think about them. Make yeah. a decision. Amen. Very good. All right. Well, we'll catch everyone next week.